Hello everyone and welcome to the Grumpy Surfer podcast. How are you all? I am the Grumpy Surfer and your host, Ads Lyson. As always, some housekeeping first and some top news. The Grumpy Surfer podcast merchandise has landed. To get your hands on some Grumpy Surfer podcast tees and hoodies, go to the links on Instagram in the link tree, which is in the bio or the Facebook page. There's a button at the top. Give it a click and it'll take you directly to the merchandise site. Or you could go directly to it by using the code or the link www.grumpysurfer.tml.com to grab yourself a cool, and they are cool, t-shirts and hoodies. Also to get 10% off your Ombi 12-week surf program, go to ombi.co forward slash ref forward slash grumpy surfer. And that link will take you straight to the Ombi site where you can get your hands on the 12-week program. I've been using it now for four weeks and I've noticed a distinct improvement in my surfing and little really small intricacies that I wouldn't have thought of that I thought wow why didn't know that earlier so go to Ombi Surf and go and check that out also for 15% of your Northcore gear go to Northcore on the internet and use the code capital letters TGSPOD15 to get 15% at the checkout from Northcore and finally, 20% off your Bra Surf merchandise. Use the code capital letters Grumpy Surfer at the checkout. Right, this week's podcast guests compete at the highest level of surfing, making it to the World Qualifying Series in the late 90s and the early 80s, competing and training with the likes of Joel Parkinson. After competing as a high-level and high-end professional surfer, he found his calling in surf coaching, which is where we find him today. So please enjoy my conversation with very funny and an enigmatic and mystical surfer, Scott Rannikin. We're live, we're live. Scott Rannikin, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Yeah, all good, all good. Um, yeah, thanks for having me. So I always start a podcast with three questions. So the first question is, I've just asked it, is how are you? Second question is, where are we? Um, we're at the gym. We're at the gym, yeah. It's, uh, I was a little bit afraid when we come down here, you start making me do burpees and squats. But yeah, so far it's been all right. So right. I'll make you drink four litres of milk in a minute. You can do some squat frosts and burpees around the outside of the gym, some duck walks. All right, I'll look forward to it. <laughs> And the next question is, I already know the answer to this question. However, have you surfed today? Yes. Yeah, we've been uh, been up at Lynmouth, you know, the pair of us. It's, uh, yeah, there's a few Atlantic rollers came in. Yeah, shame it didn't pick up a little bit more than, yeah, it felt like it was going to for a minute. For a minute there, it did actually feel like it was going to do it. But yeah, it was, yeah, nice to get a little dip. Are you allowed to say Lynmouth though? Oh, am I? I think the I think word on the street is yeah, it's out. the The days of that being a secret spot, I think, are well and truly yeah, yeah, gone. I'm always a little bit dubious about saying places around here because the the obvious places like Croydon, Saunton, and Putsbury they're they're easy ones, aren't they? But yeah, I know what you mean. Like yeah, you, yeah, I sort of forget. Yeah, this is going out to a lot of people, and you're like, oh, yeah, should I be mentioning places? But yeah, like I said, I don't think, yeah, Lynmouth's much of a secret spot any, anymore. Back in the day, it, it was for a while. I think, you know, a lot of people didn't even realise it sort of, it got waves. Um, 
But to be fair, it was rubbish, wasn't it? It was rubbish. Stuff was rubbish up there. Yeah. Don't go. Don't go. It's yeah. not worth it. Yeah. It's, it's always crowded and you'll never get any waves and it only works once a year. It, uh, yeah, I must admit that is the one downside of it now is there since uh, word is out is it does get pretty busy. Um, I did find today that I quite a few times, well, you probably saw me, I sort of paddled off into the distance where I thought, right, I've got to break away from the pack here. And then, yeah, and then just try and surf your way down through it. But yeah, yeah, it's rubbish. Don't go, don't go. Rubbish spot. Do you find yourself these days, I don't know whether it's an, an older thing, that even if you go with other people, you always find that you're paddling off on your own? Yeah, it's, um, yeah, well, especially if your mates are, uh, oh, yeah, shouldn't, yeah, keep, keep it You can swear on this, man, if you want. It's <laughs> don't just, if you want to drop C-bombs, it's completely up to you. So we'll beep it out, we'll beep it out. Yeah. But yeah, the hardest thing sometimes when you're surfing is, is surfing your friends, it's great. It's great to go surfing with your friends if there's plenty of waves coming through but sometimes when you sort of look and yeah you you know the person next to you you you, well, you can't drop in can you which you shouldn't do anyway but yeah it's uh yeah you can't really burn people you know whereas it's a lot a lot easier to burn strangers but yeah you, you shouldn't but i think it's it it's part and parcel of the world we live in now whereas years ago i remember growing up i think when i started surfing it was what 89 or something and i remember actually going to the beach once with my dad and like getting down and I just wanted to go to surfing at Saunton. Well, I'd say Saunton, aren't we? It's, uh, yeah, and getting down there and there was no one in the water and it was a Sunday morning. It was about 9.30, the sun was shining. It was sort of small, two to three foot and there was no one in. And I remember going round to Croyd and there was already four people in the water and going, oh, I'll go out there. Just for the fact that I almost didn't want to surf on my own, which you wouldn't catch yourself saying anymore. But I remember paddling out there, getting a couple of waves, but it was, Croyd was a little bit out of my league back then. And I just, I remember just coming in and going back round to Saunton because it was Croyd's such a much heavier wave. And yeah, I don't know, I was still very new to surfing. And then I went back round to Saunton and I was like, yeah, and I was stoked because there was people in there and there would, there would have been about, what, six, seven people in there and I, and I knew them. And remember going in and just feeling really comfortable and really enjoying it. Whereas if you turned up now on a sunny Sunday morning at like half nine in the morning, there was a nice two, three foot clean wave. It would, whether it was the winter or the summer, it'd be absolutely mobbed. Um, yeah, times have definitely changed. That's when you know you're getting older, isn't it? Like, oh, it wasn't like this back in my day. <laughs> yeah. I don't think I ever say that, but I, I definitely kind of, when I, when I, even if I go with a group of people that I know, you know, e even today, I, I don't generally sit, I don't like sitting in the middle of everybody. You know, I'm, I'm fighting for that wave. I'll always, like Croyd's a good example of this, where there's lots oh, yeah. of different peaks. I'll always try and find that 20 meter radius where there's nobody around me. Yeah, it's nice to be a goalpost. That's the trick I always find is if you're in the middle of the pack, then whether it's a left or a right is someone's always going to have your inside. Whereas, uh, yeah, it's always better to be the goalpost or like you say, is just be in a place where there is a good bit of distance between you and the next surfer. So it just edge your bets in it. I think you've got to in this day and age because, yeah, don't, don't go wrong. There are still plenty of spots that, yeah, aren't crowded, but definitely not mentioning them. Well, yeah, wired up to a microphone. And I must admit, I 
I, I still get to surf, even surfing Croyd, which is notorious for being very crowded. But I still t- seem to get plenty of surfs where I am surfing with just a handful of people. But uh, I think some of that is uh, having the advantage of living closer to the beach is being able to pick your battles um, sometimes, especially on those sort of stormy days and that, and just before sundown or some early mornings. It, normally, it's when the surf isn't necessarily... It's really good, but it's good because that wind's just suddenly dropped or it's a bit onshorey, but it's that sort of clean lumpy as opposed to where it's a bit like it was this afternoon when that wind comes up and it sort of ruffles it right up and it all goes a bit staircasey. Sometimes I find you can be out there in quite stormy surf and it's still quite smooth, some of the sections. But um, I do quite like those surfs just because they tend to be the ones where you just get these little moments where there's just you or just a handful of you still surfing. So it's nice to know that even in this crowded environment that we're in, that you can actually still find these sort of moments of, yeah, tranquility. (laughs) Well, let's have a little talk about your credentials because you've got a a plethora of uh, of experience within within the surfing world um whether it was you know did you tell me so what what are your credentials oh i got three gcse's <laughs> no it's uh um i suppose i well i started surfing uh well, no, well let's say it would have been yeah 89 i must have been about 12 years old um, which, to be fair, was quite late to surfing. Like, when I started, like, a few of my friends, like Matt Jenkins and Dan Newsom, and there was guys that were just, they, they, they were so good. And I was like, God, how are they so good? And, uh, yeah, they'd already been doing it for years. And um, But I did a lot of skating before I started surfing. And I think that sort of helped to a degree. And then, yeah, sort of started surfing and... Within a couple of years, I entered my first contest. I think I uh, entered the Croy Junior Championships um, and did terrible and got my ass handed to me. And then the following year, uh, as I turned 15, was when I realised there was like a, a national tour that went round and did my first junior event. And that's when I realised there was a cadets and there was younger divisions. And uh, yeah, and then I started competing in those and... Sort of did all right. I never did amazingly, but I think I just I think I I warmed to contests just on the fact that if you want to get better in anything, it pays to be around people who are better than you. So I yeah I got quite lured into the whole sort of contest scene. I think I was yeah, um, bit relentless at wanting to get to as many contests as I could, and then slowly but surely I sort of went from competing yeah at club level, let's say up to sort of national level, and then. Um, I so think we're fast forwarding quite a lot of stuff here. It, so, so you actually you grew up in North Devon, didn't you? So you you were yeah, quite well, local. Yeah, I, I originally I was born in London. My dad was in the RAF, and parents actually lived in Malta, and then decided they wanted to have their kid back in the UK. And then Dad came out of the RAF, and uh, we were living up around London. Uh, both my parents are actually Scottish. Um, I think that's why they call me Scott. So I'd yeah, I'd know where I was from. <laughs> you wouldn't lose it. Yeah, and then we uh, we ended up moving down to Devon by the time I was like five. So I, yeah, I pretty much grew up round here. And then like I say, yeah, did a lot of sort of skating when I was younger, and then yeah, got into surfing by the time I was twelve. And then yeah, I think it was uh, by yeah fourteen. Let's say started to compete with the the club, and then by sort of fifteen 
going into 16, started to compete in national contests. In fact, it was around then that I got invited to do a contest over in South Africa. Um, this is sort of just as apartheid was sort of finishing, which thinking back at it, you think this was nuts because I went kind of on my own. Well, with one other guy, James Jones from Wales, amazing surfer. And uh, he, me and him went, he was 15, I was 16. And we went over to South Africa just by ourselves. And like I say, it's like sort of um, just as apartheid was sort of coming to an end. And we went over there and did the, what they call the Hang 10 International Junior championships or something and I remember getting there and seeing the standard of surfing and it just uh, blew my mind and uh, but I did that's when I, I realized there was like pro junior contests and all this and that's where I sort of started to get more uh, delusions of grandeur and thinking I'd like to try and have a go at surfing professionally and yeah I think well I ended up spending the next three winters actually in South Africa because I was only supposed to go there for two weeks but then um, just loved it that much that I ended up, uh, I left school and I didn't bother, I wasn't going to bother going to college because I'd left school and started printing t-shirts with uh, Salt Rock, Salt Rock Clothing Company. And then because of that, I managed to save a bit of money. So in the end, I think I phoned my parents and said, I'm going to stay on South Africa a bit longer. So I changed a two-week trip into a two-month trip and then... I got the bug for South Africa and competing, so I would come home, compete, and then go back out to South Africa um, for the winter. And then I did that sort of three years in a row. So, yeah, I think I kept going to South Africa from the age of sort of 16 up to 19. What were the uh, breaks that you surfed out there? Um, what were the main of, ones? Um, the contest itself was always held in a place called Big Bay, which was just generally a big closeout. But I do remember while I was there getting the opportunity to surf a place called uh, Crayfish Factory Reef. And I don't think I've ever been so scared in my life. One, we pulled up and we were some amazing surfers, like sort of Cass Collier and Mark Jackson. I think it was Byron Howarth there as well. I don't know if he was there on that one. Um, but either way, we pulled up and me and James were looking at this this reef. And it's about it looks about two miles out to sea. And... Obviously, when we well, when we first got to South Africa, I remember flying in, and as we flew in, um, it was my first time overseas, and the pilots like, oh, if you want to look out the window, we're gonna have a nice view of the beachfront, and I remember looking down, and we were flying in quite low, and as I looked, all I could see was like one fish, two fish, three fish, one fish, two fish, three fish, and I looked at James, and I'm like, they're not fish, are they? And he's like, nah, that's definitely sharks, and I'm like. Oh my God, look how many of them there are. They were everywhere. It was like that whole bit of the coastline was just littered. And that was sort of my first experience of sort of seeing, um, yeah, just sharks and realizing how many of them were in the water. So after being at this contest for sort of a week or so, and and always when you're paddling around feeling a bit like, Ugh, and then we pulled up to this spot and let's say it's it's about two miles out to sea. And uh, and just thinking that looks so sharky, and the fact the waves were booming and out in the background, and you're just thinking that doesn't look small either. And I remember we got down there and we had to fiddle our way out through the rocks, and there was some decent swell just breaking just on the rocks. That that was intimidating enough. And then got through that, and then we're paddling out there, and I'm at the back, and as we're paddling out there, someone had say said to me, "Watch out for the kelp." 
Now I've surfed around North Devon and that, and I've surfed like on the point and a few places that get kelp, and I've seen kelp, and to me kelp's like, you know, it's a bit of glorified seaweed really. I didn't realise quite to the extent of what they meant when they said kelp, because we're paddling out there, and as we're getting closer to the reef, the swell's getting more defined, and as we're going up and down in the swell, and all of a sudden I paddle over this wave, and just as I paddle over it, I literally get picked out of the water. All I see is, to me, like black skin. I think I'm, I, as much as my my first reaction is, I'm getting eaten by a shark. Like, I freaked out. I couldn't even make a noise. Like, literally, I was muted. And I'm like, ah! And the next thing I'm thinking, I'm, I'm on a whale. I'm like Moby Dick or something. This is what, like, I, I just, my brain couldn't figure out what was happening. And what no one had told me was, that this kelp were, were like kelp trees. They're like, palm trees that grow god knows how big and i was basically stuck in the top of one of these trees so as the swell passed by and it dips down i just got picked out of the water but to me it was like black skin ah it's just i was crying like a little girl so ah just freaking out and then the boys sort of looked back saw me stuck in what is effectively the top of a palm tree and they just start laughing i think half of it was because of the fear in my eyes and yeah, they're all just giggling away and going, I told you, watch out for the kelp. I'm like, oh my God. If I'd been any older, I'd have had a heart attack, easy. And then we got out there and it was solid. And I remember it was quite intimidating surf. But yeah, I'll always remember just getting picked out of the water and thinking, oh my God, what is happening? But yeah, I was quite glad when we, when we came in. You know, some surfs, you just want it to be over. And that was definitely one of them. Yeah, you definitely... I can only kind of compare that I've, I haven't surfed um, South Africa the Navy surf team have been out there a few times yeah. to, to J Bay and stuff and, and gone out there but it's one of the places I'd like to go but I've um, I don't know I've got this kind of subconscious fear like my missus for instance yeah. she she doesn't like swimming in the sea Yeah, she, she was like a national swimmer Yeah, yeah. so uh, she she doesn't like going in the sea because she doesn't like the fact that she doesn't can't see what's under the water. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm kind of like that. Like I used to go surfing on my own, and I'd be there and I'd freak myself out. Even yeah. in the UK, it's like there's a fucking shark over there. There's a shark coming. There's the, 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 you know. So I, I could only imagine that being somewhere like that and stuck in the top of a palm tree of seaweed is a. <laughs> oh, it's definitely a trip. It's, uh, yeah, I, I think South Africa was, yeah, like just, it's kind of got it all over there, really. Like it's got waves and just the culture, just the whole thing. It's a hell of an experience. But yeah, going from like, I think ever since I saw Jaws as a kid, my mum made me watch Jaws when I, I think I was only about seven. And I couldn't even go into the, like the leisure centre swimming pool without like going in towards the deeper water and thinking, and freaking out. And yeah, I think I used to be a bit the same, but in, in the UK, you are, you're blessed with the fact that, you know, you, you feel relatively safe. There's nothing that can do you too much harm, but getting to South Africa where you're really aware that at any point you, you can be attacked and just seeing how conditioned the, the South African surfers are. And they just, they seem so hardcore and just like, just get on with it. But yeah, we, we surfed a, quite a few different spots and surfed up and around Jay Bay and all those sort of places. Um, but there was one place we surfed. Um, it was just down from a place they call Seal Point, 
which basically just already sounds like a shark's restaurant. Yeah, pretty and much. We were camping and we were camping just at this one spot. And I didn't realize we were attached to the same beach. I, I don't know why. The way we sort of drove there and that, I sort of got me coordinates a bit more mixed up. And in the morning, I was waking up and just walking off down the beach and going off to this little corner and having a surf. And the surf, uh, the the few mornings that I surfed, it was sort of two, three foot and quite onshore, so it was quite choppy. And I remember being out there in the morning and I kept thinking, I'm sure I just saw a shark's fin, but it can't be because I'm sure I just saw another one. Or And I just kept thinking I was seeing them and I was thinking, well, I know there's a few sharks around, but there isn't that many. It's your imagination. And I convinced myself it was my imagination. And at one point I even needed a pee. And I remember I came in peed in the shallows and then paddled back out which i found out later is not a great idea i've now visited the sharks board and stuff where they do a lot of research and realizing that just having it on you is not a great idea because it's a sign of fear um distress like and but yeah i just kept thinking oh, i keep thinking i see sharks fins but let it be and then on the third morning i come back from a surf and I'd been waking up a bit earlier than everyone else. And then, but a couple of the local boys were up a bit earlier this morning. They saw me coming back and they went, where have you been? I went, oh, I was just surfing down in that corner. And they went, don't surf down there. And I was like, why not? And they're like, it's like fucking shark, fucking breeding area. And they said, you do not go down there. They said, no one goes down there. And I was going, I was wondering why it was really quiet. And then it, then it dawned on me, all those times I thought I saw a shark's fin, I was. I was just watching them swimming around me. But they obviously thought, who's this lunatic? It obviously can't be anything we're interested in or it wouldn't be here. Like, yeah, they just seem to leave me alone. Well, good job, really. Like, But yeah, that, South Africa is definitely, yeah, can be quite intimidating. Although Australia is the same. I do remember once being in Australia and my mates actually walked me. They specifically walked me down a different route because there was stuff they didn't want me to see. And as we're walking down this different route, which was a bit bumpy, I accidentally kicked my toe and I took the top off it. And it was pissing blood. And then we get down to the rocks to go in the water. And we're down um, like in Western Australia, down near a place called Yelling Up. And it's notoriously sharky. And as we get stood on these rocks waiting to go out, I'm like, do you think this will be a problem? And I pointed down at my toe. And I've just stood in a little rock pool. And the rock pool has gone bright pink because I'm bleeding that badly that it's actually started to just dilute the, the water that we're stood in. And my mate that I was with was South African, actually. And he just laughed and went, you'll be all right, but just don't sit too close to me. And I remember paddling out. I got five waves in the end. And on the fifth wave, I just rode in. And there was a horrible set of rocks you had to get through. And I just remember I just rode straight over them. I didn't even care if I knocked my fins out. I think it was my, I think it might have been one of my last days surfing there before I was going home. And I thought, you know what? I want to get home alive and I'm bleeding that badly. I'm in shark infested water. I'm just getting out. And then when I got out, I realized why they'd led me down the other way. Because when I looked up at the side, what I couldn't see from the way I'd come down was all these crosses from all the people that had been killed at this spot. And the, the freaky bit was they went from like old worn crosses to bright new white ones with the flowers still sitting there. You think, <laughs> you are joking me. This regularly happens at this spot. And when I showed them my bleeding toe, they just laughed and went, yeah, just don't sit too close to me. You're like, ugh. Yeah, that must be quite disconcerting, just having a little bit of blase and like, ah, fuck it, it'll be fine. 
oh, let's just laugh it off. Like, ah, no, you'll be all right. And you're like, will I though? Will I? But but I was. And, and to be fair, it's true what they say. Like, at the end of the day, if sharks were really interested in humans, we'd just get mauled every time we go out in the water. You know, it'd be a feeding frenzy, especially now you get so much overfishing in different parts. Like, if they really liked humans, you would we'd be in trouble. Um, the problem with a shark is its primary sensors are in its mouth and to really sort of see what you are and find out about you, it's like kind of feeling you up really. It has to have a little munch on you and then generally it says, ah, I don't like you and just spits you out. But the problem is, is that one bite can be quite detrimental. And yeah, I've heard, yeah, I've heard and I heard a few horror stories and yeah, seen a few things where you think, oh, you just, yeah. But generally, they're not after us. But if they were, we'd, yeah, we'd be for it. I do remember actually in South Africa surfing a spot called Port Alfred. And we were staying in this one apartment. And we went down and we were surfing on the other side of a river mouth. And we were warming up for a contest. And I remember just as we were out there, all of a sudden, a shark popped up. And everyone's like, shark, getting out of here. And we paddled in. I remember there was um, a guy, Noel Rami, amazing surfer. And almost quite an intimidating character to some degree. And he caught this wave and no one would drop in on him because he was gunning along. But I'm being like the English tourist style. I was like, I am out of here. And I remember I dropped in on him and he sort of looked at me like he was going to just slash his board straight through my face. But as as he was sort of coming up to me, I just sort of whimpered. There's a shark out there. And he just laughed and went, ah, come on, let's get out of here. But I remember running up the beach still with my leash on. And then we got out and then, of course, we've all got out the water. And then the problem was we all suddenly realised we got out the wrong side of the river. And everyone, most of us all lived on the other side of the river and we had to get back in the river to cross it to the other side. And I remember thinking that was, yeah, that was quite a nervy time. So I just eyeballing the end of this river mouth, knowing that there was a shark swimming around at the end of it and thinking, I just remember thinking, I'm not going last and yeah, and I remember someone jumped in and they were like, well, I'm not going last. They dived in first. And then I thought I'll get into the middle of the pack. And then all of a sudden there was a bit of a queue to get out on the other side. And I remember just jumping on my board and finding a little spot and just scrabbling out of that water. But yeah, it's, it's weird when you think a lot of people surf with that stuff, you know, day in, day out and just are quite content just to, yeah, roll with it. Whereas, yeah, I'm a bit like, Ugh. yeah, it gets me a little bit on edge. Who were the uh, local crew that you were uh, surfing with at the time? Um, out there would have been the era of your sort of Frankie Olberholzers and all that. Do you remember Frankie Olberholzer? I can't say I do know. Ah, he was a legendary um, South African surfer and did uh, a lot of the videos with Tom Curran and all that when the search and all that sort of started to kick in. Okay. There was Chris Davison, who was uh, one of the younger ones, and yeah, and Frankie and all that. And... Um, not that I was necessarily surfing with him, just, yeah, getting to see him surf. Um, the crew out there at the time that I was with was sort of uh, Mark Jackson, Byron Howarth. Um, there was Wade Sharp and, oh, there was a whole... It, it felt like everyone ripped. I think when I left Cape Town, because we'd go there and do the contest in Cape Town, then we'd fly up to Durban. Um, and a couple of times we drove up there and drove through the trans guy and stuff. That was a trip all of its own. But um, yeah, when you got to Durban, it just felt like the talent pool was just endless. 
And yeah, I don't think I've ever seen so many good surfers in one spot around what they call the Dairy Bowl and New Pier and that. Uh, Shane Thorne and Noel Rami, Carl Rue and oh, they're just, yeah, Greg Swart. And yeah, it was just an endless list of rippers. Um, yeah, yeah, it's, it, that was quite an eye opener that. The good thing when you get to Durban is they had shark nets, which, yeah, made you feel a little bit safer. What, only sort of six to ten feet under the surface of the water, though? Well, yeah, you soon find out they don't go all the way to the bottom, and, <laughs> and they're staggered. So if a shark was actually following some, um, yeah, something it was after, and it was following along the side of the nets, it could soon actually end up getting stuck the wrong side of the nets. So, yeah, but I do remember... After a while, I ended up going and doing a, a stint out on the bluff, staying with a guy called Shane Warren, who was an amazing surfer, but, well, still is. And, uh, yeah, and Sky Robinson. And, yeah, that was a, a bit more shark country. Uh, it's where Martin Potter honed his skills, I think, before moving to the States. Um, but, yeah, get some amazing surf. got to say, South Africa does have just, yeah, endless amounts of good surf. What were the uh, types of competition results you used to get and, and what competitions did you enter? Um, I can't say I was amazing at contests. Um, if anything, sometimes, yeah, I think I was, as I said before, I think I was lured to them more for the fact that the best way to get better was to be around better surfers. Um, so it's, yeah, like I, I won quite a few um, club contests and, Sometimes do all right in the nationals, like, you know, make the odd finals and but a lot of sort of semi-final results and stuff like that. And then I think by the time I got to 2021, 20, something like that, maybe I was a bit old. No, about 21, I think, something around then. I think I'd almost gone off contests a little bit because I'd done so many of them. And then a legendary surfer, Rich Carter, who's like ex-British champion, he um he, well, he saw me in the pub one day and was like, get get your ass out of the pub. Took me down to the shop and uh, wrote me a check and said, I want you to get over to Europe and go and start doing some contests. He said, rather than wasting your time in the pub. And it's, uh yeah, and that, that was a game changer. Um, I remember he gave me a check and then I straight away went and booked a ticket to Portugal and that was the first time I turned up to do my first European event back when they still had the European tour. And I remember getting there and my main goal was to not go out in the first heat because if you can make it through the first heat, then you're in the top half, if you know what I mean. Whereas if you go out in the first heat, it's almost like you, you're not meant to be here. And I remember, yeah, I remember going there. I had to sleep in the car and have me bored just underneath, waking up in the morning thinking, where's the, like, trying to find the contest site. It's like totally unprepared. And then I got there and it was about six foot howling on shore, uh, a place called Balial in uh, Peniche. And I got there and I was so nervous. And I remember I did my first heat and I won my first heat. So it wasn't even, I just got second, I'd won it. And I was like, yes. And then that was it. I was stoked then, but then I won my next heat and my next heat. And then I got knocked out did something stupid. I remember I fell on a floater. Um, but yeah, I'd got through three rounds and yeah, yeah, that that was just, for me, that was like almost winning a world title. So I reckon, yeah, like I'm not, yeah, I'm not a complete kook. I can imagine that that time though, there, there wasn't really that many pe British 
guys competing on on that sort of stage? Um, there was probably about six or seven because you're just sort of coming off the era like there was still Russell Winter was still competing, um, Spencer Hargreaves, um, Gishka Roberts, and then there was like Sam Lamoroy, um, Gabe Davis, myself, Gareth Llewellyn, um, who else was there? Nathan Phillips. And that was about it, if I remember rightly. And yeah, so there was there was a little bit of a Brit pack doing the the contest scene. Oh, and then I think the following year there was like Jake Boex and that he was there. And yeah, yeah. And then that was it. Once I'd done the first one, I thought, right, I'm going to sign up to this. And for the next few years, I started doing the the European tour. Um, and some of my best results were like finishing like twentieth or twenty fifth, but for me like getting through that many rounds and and beating surfers that i felt that were better than me was like yeah was was a real achievement i think the main achievement was getting to the point where i suddenly i started to get paid to surf and i think that was just yeah that that was that was an awesome feeling was that was that through sponsors and, and people supporting you back home or was that through you know were you getting paid for getting through heats as well well, that's where you did get a bit of money through going through heats, but not a lot. Um, and let's say Rich Carter helped me out a lot. And then it was, there was a O'Neill used to do the O'Neill Surf Academy that was set up by a guy, Jay Moriarty, who sadly passed away. Um, they did make a movie in that about him, legendary surfer and legendary guy. Like, And he'd set up this uh, tour with um, O'Neill where they'd go around Europe and just teach kids to surf for free. And it was sort of him and some of his friends. And it was an amazing setup. But then he sadly passed away. And it used to pass through Croyd. And um, we ended up, um, me and a few of my friends ended up getting asked if we could help fill in. And that's actually when I first started getting into coaching. Because they needed they, they didn't want the tour to stop just because Jay had passed away. So they asked if a few Europeans could uh, like take it on. And then I did that. And then I did that one week in Croyd. And then doing that week, I met a lot of the guys from O'Neill. And that's when they said they wanted to sign me. And that's when I started getting paid professionally. Was that like helping out with the contest as well? Or, or that the, was, the, that the was just doing like coaching kids. So it was, a, it was just for one week, really intensive. Um, but then when they heard what I was doing with competing and traveling and all of that, I think they sort of figured I might make a good promotional tool for them. And they decided to sponsor me. And that's when I started getting paid properly to surf. And the beauty with that was it it was just, yeah, you you didn't have to necessarily win anything, but you had to just make sure you were you were doing all right and flying the flag, basically. Um, I sometimes think I was more of a social athlete than I was, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, hard. I wasn't quite the guy doing going for runs and doing burpees and squats. It's... But I think during that time, though, and I've talked to, um, you know, a few high-level people about this as well, during that time, there wasn't really strength and conditioning programs. There weren't, like, coaching programs like, you know, the Aussies have got a coaching program to bring oh, all totally. their youth through and stuff. It was just kind of like you guys going down there, competing, having a good time. If you got some good results, you did. But there was no kind of 
backbone support for you to 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 help you? Yeah, we we sort of came in off of the the sort of rock and roll years, you know, like you know, I grew up watching like Wave Warriors and all that, and you had like Christian Fletchers and Matt Archibalds and all of that sort of scene, and and they say themselves, you know, when they were competing and stuff, there was no one looking after them or anything like that, and. I think I came out of that just the end of that era, really, where there wasn't. You were kind of free to do what you wanted, and uh, and it was good. It was good fun. But yeah, you look at it now, and it it's such a different world. Like you know, you go down, and people are, everyone has got coaches, physios, and there's dietitians involved, and everyone's got training programs, and it's um yeah, it's just different. It's it's a lot more professional, which it it needed to do, um. Don't get me wrong, it's sad to see the, the end of that era, but yeah, you now it just yeah, I I don't think it would work. It was yeah, it was it was funny and yeah, but if it was still going on with the amount of people surfing nowadays, it would be absolute chaos. Um I think the main difference is there's more money in it these days. Um whereas back in the day, like, you know, well, if you go right back to when contest very first started, there there was no money in it. It was just for prestige alone, you know. Um, yeah, it was just for sort of kudos. Whereas now it's like, say, you know, well, Kelly Slater changed everything, didn't he? He come in and got the first million dollar contract. And now God knows what some of them are on. You know, I remember meeting Dane Reynolds. And I think at that point he was on like 3.9 million just in endorsements. You're like, you are like, yeah. Yeah, it's a different world now. Definitely. You don't see that. You know, it's not publicised as much as, you know, like, for instance, football players or NFL players or or, or footballers. The, the surfing community, you know, I'm talking the, the WSL and, and the QS and pro surfers, they kind of keep all that sort of thing close to their close to their chest, you know, that they're, uh, you do get prize money for winning, like, you know, the Pipe Masters or something mm. like that. It's quite obvious, but you don't see what their their sponsorship is or or anything like that because it it's quite um it's quite private to them I, mm. I, I guess i mean it's not you know i'm not saying that people go around floating saying oh look how much money i'm making because i'm a professional yeah, yeah, yeah. but you know when you when you've got professional athletes because that's what surfers now in the public eye are that they're, they're professional athletes you you see like the NFL players they've got like you know they get um their their payment for whatever it is for a four year contract but then you don't see the sponsorship money yeah, you don't see the endorsements, the endorsements from yeah. you know I don't know something really stupid like opening a Carrefour or something like that you know all yeah. that sort of stuff that 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 builds up and also you know um, being sponsored by a surfboard brand the clothing company yeah you you don't see all that background stuff as well which which I mean, okay, I think is 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 pretty cool because, you know, for somebody that surfs, which is you can argue it's a sport, but it's also a lifestyle mm. choice as well. It's pretty cool to be able to say, right, I'm getting paid to go surfing and surf some pretty awesome places too. It's yeah, it's it's sometimes catch 22 really i do remember there was times where i'd be running around going to these contests and doing all the stuff with, but some of the places you were getting sent to you think surf's gonna be rubbish <laughs> it's gonna be terrible and you'd actually want to be somewhere else 
And I do remember sometimes thinking it sounds great, but the reality of it sometimes is the fact that you you maybe happen to be in one place when you'd rather be somewhere else. But at the same time, you could have to go to work and, you know what I mean, work in a factory or, you know what I mean? So you had to sort of, yeah, take it with a, like, a you know, look on the bright side of it. Um, but it, it, there was a couple of times I remember sort of just being on some trips where you'd spent all this money. I think there was um, one even where we went to Panama and you think, gosh, spent all this money and... We got skunked a bit on the surf and you think for half the price could have just nipped over to the south of France and you know what I mean? But it was good. It was a really funny trip. And anyone that was on that trip. Yes. What happened in Panama stays in Panama. <laughs> it's, yeah. well, you can't say stuff like that and then not elaborate a little bit. Oh, we did a trip out there with um, it was me, Ben Selway, um, Mole, Jan, uh, Dan Joel, um, Isaac from wales who else was there who am i missing the one of the bodyboarders was it danny i want to say danny wall but it wasn't i'm sure it was somebody else but i know it was me dan isaac me dan isaac who am i missing off that trip it'll come to you That'll drive me nuts, that will. Um, <laughs> but yeah, we went out there. But yeah, Ben Selway was our photographer. And I think it was one of the bodyboarders that was there. It was a long time ago. Um, yeah, I'll have to look at the yeah magazine, see if it'll get a flashback. But yeah, it was a funny trip because uh, one, we, the, like I say, we, we weren't getting the best waves. So I remember when we turned up, I got there and my boards hadn't arrived. And then eventually, after a few days, um, one of my boards turned up, which was a 7.6 that I borrowed from Andrew Cotton. And that was the only board I had. And the surf was like two to three foot. And I was like, awesome. And we're on a photo shoot. So everyone's wanting to, you know, like go for it and bust theirs. Just, you know what I mean? Like, and I'm there riding this big gun, like sort of made it like pulling off the old nose rides. And then, uh, but also I remember getting there and, we we turn up and these boats would drop you off in the water and then bugger off and then i'd say to like the guide like well, when's the boat coming back and he'd be like oh, i'd be here in like three hours or so after you've already been in the water for like nearly an hour and you're like three more hours in what is still sharky water and i'm like this is a joke and i remember saying to ben like we're gonna have to sort out paying the boat the people who drive the boats were a, a, a bit more money to have them hang around i said because otherwise something bad's gonna happen and we're gonna be stuck in the water and then sure enough the next day we we got dropped off and he'd said to one of the guys but there'd been a little mix mash of communication and the same thing happened and sure enough we got in the water and within 10 minutes ah, calm garrett calm i remember i remember i was thinking there was another legend on that trip who was it and uh Colm takes off and he takes off on this wave and goes for a turn, ends up nosediving, board snaps, he hits Zed on the rock and he's bleeding. And he had to sit in the water just on half a surfboard <laughs> while bleeding and just left dangling off the end of this reef. 
And I just remember thinking, this is this is an accident waiting to happen. Something bad's going to happen. The worst thing that could happen is a shark turns up and starts munching on a mate. Yeah, Colm Garrett. How did I forget Colm Garrett? God, yeah, absolute ripper and legend. It's... Um, but yeah, it was one of those trips where just, yeah, everywhere they said, oh, well, let's go and try this spot and the surf would be terrible. Like we ended up driving from the Caribbean side over to the Pacific side. And then, so we tried somewhere new and then we found, we came to this little house and it takes to this house and it's beautiful. And we're living right on the, the, the end of this point. Like, well, where the point's actually just off in front of us. Oh, I can't forget the name of it. But it looked like it was going to be amazing set up. And it was like, oh, the tide's in a bit. Well, when the tide's out, this place is amazing. We've got this big house and right there by the beach. And we're like, oh, this is going to be awesome. And within, it got there and then it went dark. And it's like, cool, place has got air con. It's got this. And about 10 minutes into pure darkness, power cut. Don't, and they're like, oh, apparently this happens a lot around here. And it's like, well, how long is it going to be off for? And it's like, oh, it could be days, could be a few hours. And the power just went out, so there was no air con. You can hear all the mosquitoes making their way in. And I remember trying to go to use the toilet. There was an outside toilet. And walking outside, and I bumped into something. But what I didn't realise, it was a stray dog. But obviously in the middle of the dark, when you're in the, and we're actually in the middle of the, like, the jungle. And then, oh, God, nearly had another heart attack. It's like being stuck in the palm tree all over again. And then when we woke up in the morning, the light came in and we're like working the surf thinking, oh, in a minute, the tide's going to go out and there should be some nice waves. And literally as the tide starts to go down and you can see the waves starting, all these people turn up and they're walking through the garden. And you suddenly realise like, yeah, we look like we've got this secluded spot like all to ourselves. But apparently it was the only spot in the whole place that actually broke and about 500 people just come piling in and it wasn't that great when the tide went out and it, it was just one of those trips where you just like this trip is just jinxed and yeah and I remember we got so bored in the hotel room that was made of paper mache and I had this brand new board and Joel's like can I draw something on your board and I was like yeah go on then and he's like can I draw whatever I like and I was like yeah right, go for it and he sits there and he, he's giggling away to himself. I'm like, what's he drawing? It's like, you know, and you're thinking, oh, it's got, he's got to have a cock on it. And it might be something. And sure enough, it did. But I, my God, I couldn't believe what he'd drawn. And we're in this really Catholic place. Like, it's very religious. Like, And he's drawn on the bottom of my board, like a national front style full skinhead flipping the bird and his the bird, arm that's flipping the bird is sort of up in the nose and he's got his other arm out punching through the arse of another guy and it's coming out this guy's throat and wanking off another guy who's lying on the floor with his finger up the bum of the guy that's got the hand going through the back of his ass who the and then the person who's being wanked off is fingering the butthole of another bloke and I was like this horrific sort of gay whatever you call it scene and which is ha 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 funny and everyone else finds it funny and they're like right oh, it's brand new board pristine and i laughed it off i'm like brilliant like just yeah full like yeah homoerotic scene on the bottom of my board but the worst bit was was we went out for a surf the next day and i've gone for a surf and i paddle and i'm done and we've managed to actually start paying the fishermen a bit more so they actually hang around I'm like, oh, I'm going to go in now. And as I get up to the boat, I'm like, oh, no, because they're asking for me to pass this board up. And I'm like, 
oh no, like, and I'm trying to hold the board so it's like wax up, keeping the bottom down, literally. And I'm, I'm trying to sort of give it to him. And then sure enough, I'm just trying to slide it over into the boat. And I'm like, oh no, no, it'll be all right here. And the kiddie just picks it and he spins it over and he sort of smiles, looks, and he starts studying the bottom of this board and his face just, oh, it was a picture. It just, he looked horrified. And then he taps his dad, almost looking a bit angry. And it's like, look, dad. And his dad's going, and you can see his brain exploding as he's just looking at the scene that Joel's, um, that Dan's actually drawn on the bottom of a board. And I'm like, you bastard. And then I had to sit in the boat while they're just talking away and that like, yeah. And they're just muttering. Well, luckily, I couldn't understand what they were saying. And But I would imagine any of it was any good. So when we got back that night, I... I did a bit of editing and I tried to change some, put a pair of pants on this guy and cover up the dangling pair of testicles and yeah, change this for that and this for that and make it at least look a little bit more heterosexual. Um, Still wasn't a good look, but yeah, I thought it was better than the, yeah, the sort of gay orgy, aggressive gay orgy that was, yeah, uh, pictated. I think he was a good drawer then. Yeah, 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 really, very artistic, very artistic. (laughs) We'll edit all that out, we'll edit all that out. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, it was just, yeah, it was one of those trips. It was really funny, but yeah, we didn't, yeah, we got kind of dogged on the waves, really. Um, And potentially Panama has the potential to be absolutely amazing. But yeah, in the end, I think we started spending more time in the bars and all of that. And let's say it's one of those sort of things where you think, yeah, it's cool because I've been paid to come here. But for half the price, could have probably just gone south of France and got some waves. And yeah, yeah. but yeah, but some trips, some some of the trips that you look back on that uh, were the worst for surf, you do actually sometimes look back and think, yeah, I'm really glad I did that trip. It was hilarious, but I don't want to do it again. I'm not in a rush. Yeah, that was that was one of them. You talked a, a little bit earlier when we were uh, we were driving in the car down to Limith. You you dropped some uh, some stories about some some of the some of the bigger names like Mick Fanning and. Uh, and Joel Parkinson, have you have you got any stories about those guys? Yeah, I I met I was lucky enough to meet Joel when he was just coming off the back of uh, I think back to back QS wins. Um, in fact, I remember I stayed with a guy called Carwin Williams, absolute legend and fucking absolute ripper. And I was lucky enough to get invited to go out and do some training at his place because he had a place in France and he would train a lot of the sort of up and coming riders. And uh, I do remember going for one of my first runs and you'd have to jog lightly down to this bridge and then you'd have a good warm up and a stretch. And then you'd have to go on this circuit and run all the way around till you got back to the house. And uh, I remember the first time we went on one of the runs and we'd uh, we'd snuck out the night before and had a few drinks and all that. That sounds a bit more of a social athlete. And... Uh, yeah, and we, we run down to the bridge and we run down to the bridge and just as we got there, I remember Joel just going, Carwin, mate, fuck this. I ain't fucking running. It sucks balls, mate. I'm going home. And he just turned and walked off. And the rest of us kind of looked because a few of us were a bit hungover and we're like, almost like, oh, if he isn't doing it, it's good enough for him to fuck off. Like, well, we're going to do the same. And Carwin's like, nope. 
You fucking lot. He said, he's just fucking one, two fucking QSs back to back. He can do whatever the fuck he wants. You lot, fuckers, get fucking running. <laughs> and we had to fucking get on the run. And uh, and me and my mate, uh, uh, Ryan, we ended up, uh, we, uh, we figured it out. Ryan Humphreys, legend and ripper. We d- figured if you ran out in front of everyone and just got a little bit far enough ahead there was a little hole in one of the hedges and you could jump through the hedge cut literally walk across the field and by the time you walked across the field everyone else would be just starting to come around the circuit and then once you get out the other side of the field leg it as fast as you could to the house so you got yourself all a bit purple faced and out of breath and you'd come in just before everyone else and this one Aussie kid, after doing this, because we have to go and do these every day, like, and there was one Aussie kid, he, he, he fucking, I remember he legged it as we were trying to leg it out in front to get to the hole in the, the hedge. He, he kept catching us up and he's like, I fucking, I'm watching you, I'm watching you. And yeah, and we're like, fucking come on then, hurry up. And then got him through the, the field. And as we got into the field, he's like, I fucking knew it. He said, I knew, I knew you. Like he said, I knew you lot weren't that fast. He said, because I've been seeing you sneaking out, drinking of an evening. He says, no way they can be smashing us like this. And we're right, you don't tell anyone. So yeah, every day we get down there, leg it up to the hole, through the hole, walk across the field. And then, yeah. But I always remember laughing at, yeah, Joel's just reaction of, mate, fuck this. I'm not doing running. But don't get me wrong, as he went on to do his pro career, I know he got a lot more serious about training and all that sort of stuff. But it was like saying before, like years ago, like back then, that was still coming off the era where you didn't have all these coaching programs. And that was sort of something Carwin was trying to change and get everyone training. And and yeah, it's... um. Yeah, I know he did go on to do a lot of that. But yeah, we did have a couple of nights out. In fact, once he shaved one of my eyebrows off and put me in a board bag, and buried me under about 27 boards. And I remember Rabbit, Wayne Rabbit Bartholomew, tugging on me toe in the morning. Is there someone alive in there? The only thing was, he'd only shaved, he'd only shaved half my eyebrow. And at that time in France, all the rippers all were missing off an eyebrow because it was a thing. Everyone was getting everyone. And it was, ah, I got you, ah, I got you. So they shaved off my eyebrow. And as much as people were laughing, I was kind of like, well, actually, you've turned me into one of the cooler people. Like, <laughs> because I've got half an eyebrow and so is he and so is he. And they absolutely rip. So I was associated with them just by having half an eyebrow. So, yeah, I was um, I was quite stoked. I was, uh, I'd have been happy just to sneak off and shave it off myself. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, I did have a couple of nights out with Joel. Um, never met Mick, but yeah, it's um. But Joel was a legend. He was yeah, really nice guy, and he absolutely ripped. I remember surfing with him and stuff, and just thinking, God, how relaxed is this guy? Paul, absolutely killing it. Yeah, very smooth surfer. You uh, you alluded on to it early, you know, getting into your um your coaching career after you know you done quite a bit of competitive surfing um how did how did the the coaching come about and you're also um how are you uh sort of associated with the croyd uh the croyd surf um club as well it's um well let's say i when i got invited to do like to help fill in with after what happened to jay moriarty 
Um, I did that week and then let's say and that's when I picked up um, proper sponsorship. But it also meant I got asked to come back and do that academy again. And then that's where the following year um, all Jay's friends came back um, and some absolute legends, Tyler Fox and Chris Lynch and a whole contingency, um, Joey Hudson and yeah, and I just met all these legends and that's actually when I really start to get into coaching because uh, just seeing the passion that they were putting into it and that's when I realised that back then, like when I first started surfing, there wasn't any surf schools, there wasn't any of that stuff and then we'd seen them start to come about but I suddenly realised there was a, a market to do something on the same sort of style or as the Surf Academy and really put put passion into it and just yeah just uh, like yeah that that's when I fell in love with coaching and then that's when I had an idea of setting up um my own surf school and then um I spoke to a couple of friends and we ended up setting up a surf school called uh Surfing Croy Bay and that's when I started getting into coaching a lot more full time and then around the same time as that um Croyd Surf Club and stuff started putting on like kids evenings and stuff like that and and getting involved with the, that whole side of it and uh and yeah that would have been back when I first started coaching and I I loved it they used to say if you can't do you teach and so it was almost like ah oh, yeah if you you know if you can't surf that well or whatever yeah you get into coaching and all that but I soon realized it was actually the other way. And they say the best way to learn anything is to try and teach it. And that's when um, I fell even more in love with coaching because I realized by trying to teach it, I had to break down what I was doing into bite-sized pieces. And it became a game changer for my own surfing. And I still find myself doing that to this day. And uh, it's, yeah, it, it's... It's really good trying to figure everything out and let's say break it down into really small pieces and think, right, well, it's not magic. And that's where when you look at the best surfers in the world and you think, well, they're not magicians, they're, they're, there's technique. Like, don't get me wrong, a lot of it is they're, they're so um, conscious, well, in their subconscious, they are so aware of wave mechanics and wave formation because so many of them have been around it for such a young age. And it just comes naturally to them. But at the same time, like I say, it's not magic. They're just, it's their technique, the way they read the ocean and everything. Um, and a massive one is is when you see, especially like a top professional shortboarders get up and the speed they generate. But if you look at how good they are with their footwork, like you see a lot of the top surfers when they first jump up on the shortboards, that back foot's not back on the tail. It's further up the board. And then it's the way they de-weight themselves when they first get up. They really get that board going. And there's almost like a, a sort of shunt movement. Because the basics of turning a surfboard is simple. It's compression and rotation. You compress out through your back foot while rotating your upper body to where you want to go. But they don't just compress over the back foot. They kind of shunt their body weight forward. They're almost trying to put the back leg through their front leg. And it's a bit like if you ever see a skateboarder when they want to pump and get up the other side of the skate ramp. They, there's like a little shunt. They shunt the board forward. And when you watch top elite shortboarders, they do this. When they first jump up, they really get that board going. That first drive is just, yeah, is there's so much explosivity in it. And when you see a lot of us, yeah, um, uh, sort of uh, what we call just 
um, when you're at a lower level, you see a lot of people, you just jump up and they expect that board just to start going for them. They're not being the engine room. And the elite, they are that engine room. They get that board going. If you look at Italo Ferreira and stuff, like so gymnastical. And they get up and they get that board going like they've got a gun to their head. Um, whereas a lot of us can find it very easy just to get up. And if you don't attack that wave the second you're up, it's it's too late. You're going to have to wait for the, the wave to generate speed for you. That's where it's fine if you're riding like a bigger board, um, like the one you had out today. The boards that are brilliant because they generate automatically generate speed and acceleration for you. So you don't have to like panic to get that board going. But when you look at some of the boards, some of like even Kelly Slater, I look at one of his boards the other day and I was like, this thing's tiny. I can't help but feel if I went out in the water, like now I'm a lot older, like mid 40s, you find you get out, I jump up on this board and it would just start sinking underneath me. But um, yeah, but like I say, the attraction to coaching is starting to really look at the just the board and body mechanics and everything being involved with surfing. And yeah, it can be quite an eye opener when you start to break a lot of it down. So you've you've started putting uh, videos out over what the last sort of like you know four to five years, and we'll I'll talk about Morocco in a minute, um, but. You've uh, you've started an uh, an online academy basically called My Surf Lessons that you started to put all your experience and 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 your knowledge into. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Um, yeah, it's yeah, I've, it's sort of a a, a light hearted educational look at surfing, and I suppose the same thing, just bite sized pieces. I have got a website that I've probably got over a hundred videos on it now, and I'm sometimes terrible for you know social media people are like why don't you hashtag this and da da da. It's like just trying to be cool. It's uh, yeah no I'm terrible for that sort of stuff and promoting it because a lot of the little bite sized clips that I put up there is actually the whole video up on the website, um, and a lot of people even like I didn't even know you had a website. But um, yeah, yeah, the Instagram stuff has yeah just become quite good fun. Is um, like say keep it lighthearted and just breaking down little, um, just breaking surfing down into bite sized pieces really. Um, and it's yeah yeah I've been doing that about sort of four five years. I just found because I sort of full like I've done the whole thing like I've done everything from sort of doing beginner lessons on the beach and and, and a lot of working down on the beach and then. I found that sometimes when people get down to the water's edge, like even uh, older people, is they just kind of want to get in the water and start surfing. And having to sort of sit there and go through a lesson or any coaching, generally, and especially with the sort of kids and stuff, is that tend to be sort of like, oh, are we going in the water? It's like, well, when is it going to let us go in the water? And they almost don't want to listen to a lot of stuff if you can see waves breaking out behind you. And for people that are older, sometimes time's even more precious. So going down and doing a lesson, that's great, or booking in a lesson, but they know that they're going to have to stand there and go through quite a bit of, you know, spiel on this, that, and the other. And they're just like kids. Like, you can be in your mid-40s, but if, if like, you're still a child when it comes down to surfing. You see waves, you want to be in the water. So I just thought, well, if, if you put stuff into tutorial videos and stuff, people can sit there and just learn from the comfort of their own front room. And sometimes you just need a light bulb moment in surfing. Like I was always like that growing up and I'm still like that now. Someone says that one thing that you think, 
oh, I just want to try that. I want to get in the water and I want to try that. And I like to think a lot of my videos are sort of based on that. You can sit there and watch a couple of them and think, oh, that makes sense, that light bulb moment. And then now you're amped to get in the water because you want to try this. And I just thought we live in a world now where, well, especially with COVID and new world order and stuff is, there's a lot of learning just online nowadays. Um, so I thought I wanted to do something that allows people to learn from the comfort of their own front room. And let's say it's not really based all around doing like workouts and doing squats and press ups. And yes, it pays to be flexible. Yes, it pays to be fit if you want to surf and you want longevity with yourself. And it does because like popping up is like its own gymnastical move. But the bottom line is if you want to learn to play the guitar, but you're holding it upside down. It doesn't matter how much, you, not. I suppose my point is if you, you can do all the training in the world, but if your technique's not spot on, then it's, it's not going to help that much. Whereas sometimes just by realizing you're not looking where you want to go or you're not actually arching your back when you surf, so you're not actually allowing yourself to create any torque, those are the things that are going to make a massive difference. But yes, fitness, diet, flexibility, all these things, this is really conducive to having longevity with your surfing, but you need good technique. And I think a lot of what I do with my tutorial videos and stuff like that is just based around technique. Yeah, uh, I've, you've gave me access to your um, to the tutorial videos, what, maybe a couple of months ago when we started yeah. started talking. And um, I, I like the way that you throw a little bit of humour in, into it as well because i think especially you know you talked about modern day society and online teaching it can become almost serious too much and yeah. and what is surfing why do people do it because it's fucking fun it's so much fun and the feeling that you get from it when you take off on the wave and you do a couple of turns or you have a really long ride, whether you're a beginner, intermediate or advanced or whatever, you get a decent ride and you come away from that session and, and you're so pumped and you're so amped. And I think putting a little bit of humor behind some technique and some pointers, what people can actually, you know, get their teeth into and practice themselves you know, is a really good way of, you know, sparking that light bulb moment for them. Where well, you, you hit the nail on the head, it's like, why did you start surfing in the first place? And most of us is you get up on that first wave and I still remember it and just gliding along going, this is awesome. And it's just riding a bit of white water. You know what I mean? It's uh, and that the, I suppose it's a little bit like, you know, if anyone ever played any golf or anything like that it's like you seem to yeah it's it's sometimes the the better you get almost you can have more tantrums with it and easy to forget why you started in the first place you know you sometimes come out of the war and go god fucking shock i fucking you just want to smash your board up and it's that and that's where um but a lot of that generally is where i think we were talking about it earlier when we were talking about uh mid lengths and and different equipment is nowadays there is such a selection of equipment that it's really you you shouldn't really be having a bad surf because it the it, it it's going out on the right kit like nowadays i find that i'm quite happy if the surf doesn't look great it's i just take a mal out or softboard out and go and do go through the the stuff that is is 
the reason I fell in love with it in the first place, which is the glide, just gliding along a wave and just enjoy it. Um, like I actually really like going out and especially sometimes it's small or bigger, but when the surf just doesn't look that conducive to riding a, a shortboard and, you know, sometimes I'm not going to be out there like killing it like Kelly Slater. You just want to go out and draw some smooth lines and going out sometimes on a bigger board and just cruising and thinking, this is actually really good fun. Well, you, you kind of hit the nail on the head there. And I, I know we had a little conversation about equipment and I'm quite a stickler for this really because I, I ride lots of different types of boards and I, and I and I know personally, and I think this is where people, when they look to go and buy a board or they, um, you know, they want to improve their surfing, going and buying a Paisal Phantom or, you know, a, um, what does uh, Philippe Tillou ride? Um, the 77s, what they're called. Oh, I can't, um... You know what I mean? I know what you mean. I yeah, you like mean. the high-end... Google it. Yeah, Google it. <laughs> I should know. It's on the back of my head. It's annoying. Um, going and buying those those high-end surfboards, they're never going to surf like those people. Well, I say never. That, that that's, a, that's a wrong terminology to use. If you're somebody that surfs maybe once or twice a week or gets in the water at the weekend and you buy a board like that, that's far too short and you think you're going to surf like that you're living on a different planet mm. so when i and i you know it's taken me a long time to realize this you know what I, I bought back in the day you know dhds mick fanning models um you, you know i i bought the the latest the boards are available <laughs> you know i i bought different thruster models um but I have more fun on, you know, my 7.0 that's uh, shaped by Luke Young. Uh, is 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 like a twin pin, two plus one, but I've got, you know, some keel fins in it. I can just draw some really nice lines out of it, but it's really, really fast. And I can enjoy what I'm doing and I don't have to think, right, I've got to really blast the back out of this wave. When if you don't really know how to do that, all that's going to happen is either you're going to pearl it you're going to fuck it up. You're going to get behind the back of the, you're going to get behind the white wall or you're going to lose all your speed and you can come off the back of the wave. That's pretty much what you're going to do. When you come out and you might tell your mates you had a good surf and yeah, yeah, I know it's good. Other waves were great, but did you really enjoy that? Did you really? Cause yeah, I must admit, I, you know, some great surfs that I've had, I've just, I've gone out and just gone out on a foamy and whether it's been big or small, um, there's been times where even overseas and that and coaching on the beach and there's some good solid swell running and I've thought, you know what, I'm just going to take that foamy out and go and catch some of them because I know I can get into it early and even if they're closing out, you can just take a couple of glory drops and then straighten out and watch the wave as it breaks behind you and be like, yeah, like pretend you're in Hawaii. And that sort of stuff is just, just good fun because the bottom line is, is, is that's why you started surfing. If you didn't start surfing for that reason, you just wanted to look cool or whatever, then you, you're in the wrong game. It's like, uh, 
don't get me wrong there's there's plenty of people like that in all sports and sides who you know what you call a, a lifestyler but yeah but generally most people start surfing because they they enjoy surfing they enjoy that feeling of gliding along a wave it feels awesome when you get locked into that ride and it's nice being in the ocean and you know um and yeah and let's say it's it's very easy to i think a lot of people did especially back in sort of the late 80s early 90s where people were just get onto a short board and half of it was because you know, it's easy to duck dive so getting out there was a lot easier whereas um that's where i think i even said in one of my last videos it's like you you the eskimo roll when i actually learned how to eskimo roll properly it was a game changer because you see a lot of people in the eskimo roll they just roll the board over and then hang and try and pull the board down towards them and it just that doesn't work like the trick is you accelerate towards the wave so as you roll it there's still a little bit of forward momentum but as you roll the board over you stab it above your head so you're spiking it into the water and because as you roll it over the rocker line is now inverted as you stab it forward it chisels itself under the water and then the trick is you stab it and then push away and by pushing away, you actually push yourself down and reinforce um, the the what you call it the resistance you put between the the board and and the wave. Whereas if when you pull down, you you break that resistance. You're by pulling the board down, you allow the water to get around it. But the trick is you roll, stab, and then push away, and it intensifies the seal between the board and the wave. And then as the wave passes, you slide one of your hands down and roll back over. But most people just see a wave coming, slow up on the paddling and kind of roll over. You see people even with their feet wrapped around it, like trying to hang on. The weird thing is I wanted to test whether that was doable on a shortboard. So I started doing a couple Eskimo rolls just on my little 5.8 and it worked a treat. And I was like, oh my God, how easy is this? But it's not, you know, it's a little trick to it. You can watch my video on my site; uh, <laughs> it's available. Um, but yeah, but it, it's it, it's that technique, and and I think years ago that's what put people off the bigger boards was how am I going to get this this big board out through the bigger surf? But when you watch the guys and girls who go and surf huge waves, unless they're doing towings and they're on a little board, which probably weighs more than three big boards put together, they're like lead. Um, they're generally, they go out on those guns, they're like 10 foot, they're fucking huge. You ain't duck diving that. You see um, Nathan Florence going out to go and have a little go at Wyomere Bay, he's, he's not going out on a 5.8 because, oh, it's big and I'm gonna duck dive it. There ain't no fucking duck diving. They're fucking, they're gonna Eskimo roll if, if they were in a lip, but chances are they're going to do one thing and one thing alone, bail. They're going to bail. Those boards are for them. We've got two leash plugs in the back because they know there's a good chance they're going to have to bail and they they don't want to lose their board. It's, um yeah, those boards are huge. No one's duck diving them. But I think that was always the allure years ago was get the little board. It's easy to duck dive. That'll get me out there. Plus yeah, the fact that the pros used to ride them and... And that was the still the allure now, isn't it? Well, of, yeah, of, totally, people. totally. As it's a, they're a little bit different now. You sometimes see some of these like what still looks like a really nice shortboard, but it has actually got almost forty liters in it. Um, I've had to go on a few of them, and you're like, oh god, they're actually quite good. This is my age creeping in. And as you get older, it's you have to match your age with your literage. <laughs> 
I like that. That's a, that's a good analogy to use. Mm-hmm. It, feel, it feels right. It feels like I'm going that way. Well, but, not the thing that you're riding today, though. Uh, that's that's still got at least sort of thirty liters in it, maybe just over. And yeah, that's that. And that they managed to cram that down into a little five eight. Um, but yeah, yeah, that still still seems to float me all right. So yeah, I'm just still trying to relive my youth, pretend I'm younger than I am. That's what it is. Mate, I was uh, I was going to talk about your Morocco days, but I think that might be a uh, another podcast in itself. So we're just going to tie this tie this up with um, a quick fire round. All right. Um, I'd like to do at the end of uh, at the end of my my surf podcasts. So the first question is: If you had one surfboard fin setup for the rest of your life, would it be a thruster twin fin single fin quad bonza or finless? Oh, it's a toughie. See, a few weeks ago, I would have just said thruster, hands down, because I've always said, like, even with my bigger boards, I've never been a fan of a long board. If I'm going to ride a longer board, it's normally like a male, like sort of eight, six, eight foot, something like that, and then have that three fin thruster set up because then it's still so much more maneuverable. You get into the tail, you can still ride it like a short board to a degree. Um but lately, I've started riding a quad setup, and I'm like, oh my god, this is awesome! I love it. Yeah, I don't know why I, I didn't think I would, but but I suppose if I had to just have one, then I would probably still go the thruster setup. Simon Anderson, whoop whoop whoop. Yeah, <laughs> it's that. Uh, yeah, but yeah, only because I probably I haven't tried a bigger board with a quad. So, yeah, ask me in a few more weeks when I've maybe experimented with putting a quad set up on the bigger boards and I might have to go with the quad because, yeah, I can feel myself being converted. <laughs> it's, yeah, yeah, let's say that that was a game changer for me. So, actually, stuff I'm going to say quad. I'm just going to say quad and be done with it. There's nothing to say I couldn't change the size of the fins. Your favourite surfer and why? Um, I think one of my favourite surfers still to this day and has been for years would be Kalani Rob. It's uh, he actually does his own little. You might have seen it. He does Beef's TV and all of that. But he still absolutely rips. But I remember watching him and being goofy footed, um, growing up as a kid and thinking just that I just loved his style, everything about the way he surfed. He was just absolutely amazing. And then seeing him now, and he's like, must be about the same age as me. And he's out there, he still rides anything. He can get out and ride a bodyboard or just just anything. I just think he is absolutely awesome and still out there absolutely killing it. Um, yeah, he's like just that sort of in the shadows of your sort of uh, uh, Jamie O'Brien, that sort of style, who again is another one that is just, just yeah unbelievable um but yeah Kalani Rob if I had to pick one I'd say it's Kalani Rob yeah yeah definitely worst person and best person to share a lineup with um oh I suppose best person would just well it would have to be a general and that would be your mates because it is Apart from two of them, because of cunts. <laughs> but I won't say any names. I won't say any names. I think, actually, that's sometimes 
that that would cover both is the best people to self with are your mates and sometimes the worst people to self with are your mates in fact yeah then yeah yeah in fact i'm not gonna say it <laughs> the first surf movie you ever watched the first surf movie the first proper surf movie i ever watched was crystal voyager and um, which is a legendary uh, i had it on vhs yeah well exactly in fact i i'd got a video from uh the video store and they'd said there was some surfing on this video and i'd watched it and i, I think technically the first thing i saw was some dodgy the surfing wasn't dodgy it was the vhs copy of it was some hawaiian contest footage of the van's triple crown and it had like oki and gary elkerton and all of them and it was and it's a legendary bit of footage but the quality wasn't great and i remember it only went on for a little while and then all of a sudden it cut into this crystal voyager and i remember watching that and the little boat thing that he makes after his dream of aliens or something them going and surfing these perfectly clean waves and there was a bit of kelp involved around there but yeah not quite scary but i just remember watching the surfing and even though there was a lot of kneeboarding and stuff like that i just remember thinking christ is awesome so i think that was the first surf movie that i actually watched and that's when back when surfing was a lifestyle you know as opposed to the more the sport it is today i think it's in two things now it's it's a sport but at the same time it is a lifestyle there's yeah it's um yeah it's a bit of a funny paradox that it sort of lives in the last surf movie you watched or surf film or surf edit whatever you want um well now it's there's so much stuff like so much stuff available that all the contests are streamed and all of that and and everything that Probably the last one that I sat down and watched would have been the last, uh, the the decider of uh, the world title and seeing Gable Medina fly about 1,300 feet into the air. Um, that was the last um, bit of surfing that I sat and watched. But then since then, I've been watching a little bit of the contest in Portugal and, and, and I feel like I, I only have to turn on Instagram and I'll see three, like even today, one of my mates, uh, Richie Seals, amazing surfer. And as I opened up Instagram, he just posted him in Western Australia, just pulling this fucking awesome barrel that I feel like I get drip fed my surfing. Whereas I remember growing up as a kid getting um, Ozone, the O'Neill surf video. I remember getting that for a birthday when that came out. I remember I went down to the village hall and Croyd Surf Club put it on and we all went in and sat in chairs and watched this movie and we're like, oh my God, I have to get a copy of that movie. And then I remember it coming in the post and sitting there and I watched a bit before school and then I couldn't wait to get home from school and just watch that movie. And, ah, oh God, I must have watched that movie so many times. And then... And being excited because I was taking it around my mate's house that weekend. And we were going to sit and watch that movie. And we'd watch it in the morning. And yeah, it's, yeah, that was just awesome. I, I feel like, yeah, I miss a little bit of that. You know, back when a surf mag would come out. And you'd be like, oh, new surf mag's out. And you'd buy it. And now we just get drip fed everything. Like I'm on an intravenous drip. And because I follow so many different surfers and all that, I am constantly getting it. But yeah, you don't get that build up. You've, it's easy access now. There's almost too much. Yeah, to some degree. Like, don't get me wrong. There's loads of good stuff. Like, 
saying today, like watching Taj Burrows do the the stab series with the, all the selection of boards and like some great stuff out there and um, weird waves that Matey does for vans and stuff. And there's some really good stuff out there. Um, but yeah, it, it's constant. I almost feel like I can't keep up. Whereas back in the old days, you know, back when Wave Warriors and all that was, you you had to wait. It's a surf movie coming out. Um, but yeah, it's pros and cons to it all, really. If you had one wave to surf for the rest of your life, what would it be? One wave? Um, ooh. Oh, as, uh, yeah, as in not necessarily a height or whatever, one spot. Just just a break, yeah. A break. Um, oh, it's a tough one, really. Having sort of, yeah, done a little bit of travelling is there's a few different spots that you think, I must admit that would be having spent a lot of time out in Morocco. I would say probably somewhere like um, Oh no, it's a tough one. That's a tough one. I was gonna say um, Oh, because there, there's a spot that I used to surf a lot when I was in Morocco called Killers, and I probably had some of my best surfs out there. And it's such a nice long right-hand point break. But being goofy-footed and thinking of a couple other spots that I surfed, little hidden gems in and around uh, the Canaries, there's a couple of them. But as you get older, you think, if I got to surf it for the rest of my life, some of them are quite heavy. And maybe as I deteriorate, I might not be able to keep up and just spend my life going over the falls, caught in purgatory. It's, uh, but yeah, I would say somewhere like Killer Point in Morocco was yeah such a lovely wave that yeah I could quite happily spend my days surfing that for the rest of my life, easily. It's uh yeah, but yeah there there is one spot in particular in the Canaries that I would love to, but I won't say its name because I don't know if that's yeah allowed just yet. I don't know if the the secret is out on that one. Um yeah, so I'm, I'll shut my mouth. So before we finish, where can people find your uh, surfing tutorials? And also heard that you've started a clothing company as well. Yeah, so if you're looking to find me online for as far as uh, my surfing tutorial videos go, you'll find them at myselflessons.com. And yeah, you're right. I have actually started a clothing label with uh, my business partner, Ian, um stolen goods i think it's just like the fact that i like saying that i sell stolen goods but yeah that's uh we sell that exclusively out of croyd and uh yeah it's a, a work in progress a little bit like an angry teenager but yeah if you're looking to find any of that and have a little look at what we do it's stolengoods.uk scott thanks very much for joining me on the podcast and like i said i think there's another there's another episode here somewhere talking about morocco which would be epic so again thanks for the stories mate and it's been absolutely epic oh no nice one thanks for having me and yeah and uh yeah hopefully see you see you soon well you you sat next to me so you're gonna see me now (laughs) he's gonna make me do burpees now (laughs) and that's it to check out scott's coaching go to the website www.mysurflessons.com to go and check out his surf content. Next week's episode incorporates all three concepts of the grumpy surfer, surfing, jiu-jitsu and military stories. So tune back in in two weeks' time for that podcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs>